Hi, this is Thomas Zweifel, author of Leadership in 100 Days, and you're listening to My Quest for the Best with Bill Ringle. Listen up, small business founders, senior managers, and rising stars. Bill Ringle here, host of My Quest for the Best, the podcast for ambitious small business leaders. On each episode, I bring you the inside stories from published and accomplished experts who want to share their knowledge and experiences in order to help you be more successful in leading your people, managing your business, and navigating toward more growth and more impact in a changing and challenging landscape. Let's dive in. Joining me today is Thomas Weipel. Since 1984, this ex-CEO of Swiss consulting group named Fast Company by Fast Company Magazine and featured in ABC, Bloomberg, CNN, and the Financial Times has coached leaders on four continents to open new strategic frontiers and meet new business imperatives. He's an award-winning author of eight books, including Communicator Die, Culture Clash 2.0, iCoach, and several others. He earned his PhD in international political economy from New York University and has served as an adjunct professor at Columbia University as a visiting professor at HSG. In 1996, Thomas realized his dream of breaking the three-hour mark in the 26-mile foot race. And in 19 1997 was recognized as the fastest CEO in the New York City Marathon. Thomas lives in Zurich, Switzerland, and is here to talk about his book, Leadership in Days, Your Systematic Self-Coaching Roadmap to Power and Impact and Your Future. Welcome, Thomas. Hi, Bill. It's a pleasure to be here. It's so great to have you. Tell me, Thomas, when you were growing up, who's somebody who influenced or inspired you? I would say that one person, it may sound corny, but one person was Mahatma Gandhi, who, as you all know, was instrumental in freeing India from the British Empire. Little story about him that a mother came to Mahatma Gandhi with her eight-year-old son, and she had to go with a bus and the rickshaw and the train. She finally was in the ashram. She stands in front of Gandhi, and Gandhi bent down and says, what do you want? She says, tell my eight-year-old son here to stop eating sugar. And Mahatma Gandhi says, okay, fine, come back in two weeks. So she goes, okay, I don't quite understand, but she goes all the way back to her village. Two weeks later, she comes all the way again with the rickshaw, the, the bus, the train. She stands in front of Gandhi and he bends down and says, what do you want? She says, now tell my son to stop eating sugar. And he bends down and says, stop eating sugar. The mother loses it. She goes like, why didn't you tell me that two weeks ago? You could have saved me all this trouble. Gandhi says, two weeks ago, I was eating sugar. So this is my hero for having integrity to actually walk the talk, to be yourself and to not claim stuff that you cannot do. That's really important. So let me ask, what's an example of how that impacted your career or how you dealt with somebody maybe early in your career? Was there a conversation that comes to mind where you knew that story about Gandhi was forcing you to adhere to a higher standard. Yeah, strangely enough, it was 9-11. I had the dubious privilege to to witness the planes actually flying into the World Trade Center, a bench on the Brooklyn Promenade. I was living in New York at the time. The next day I went back to mourn. And basically in that moment, I can't explain it, but in that moment, I discovered who I am and who I'm not. There was a rabbi who came up to me and said, are you Jewish? I would have usually said, go away. That's none of your business. I'm reading here. But on that day, I was so vulnerable and so raw that I decided to say, yes, my, my mother was Jewish. I have no idea about Judaism, but that's who I am. I remember being afraid to say that because I, I was like, what if people know me and then they're going to punish me somehow or throw me out? In that moment, I said, no, even if I had to die, God forbid, it's better to die being yourself than not being yourself and being alive. I let go of relationships, of certain practices, certain jobs, things that were not really me. And, and I think through that event, I discovered my authenticity. It is such a, a powerful time 
that episode caused many of us, myself included, to really look hard at to what we're doing with this precious gift we have of our life and to be who we are and to make the contributions that we're capable of doing rather than wasting time on things that are not key, central of essence. Exactly. There's a rabbi who lived in the 18th century. His name was Rabbi Zusha of Anipoli. And Rabbi Zusha famously said, in the world to come, when I die, I shall not be asked, why were you not Moses or why were you not Abraham? I shall be asked, why were you not Zusha? Like you say, our job is to find out who are we and what does life want from us? It's not so much what do I want, but it's like, what does life want from me? Then to discover that life purpose and then fulfill it. That's a whole other challenge, but to actually understand why am I on this earth? I'm on this earth for a purpose to do something that has never been done before. That's my job to find out what that is. Many people in business today think that becoming a leader is the way to make their biggest contribution. What would you say based upon your extensive ex study as well as experience with business leaders? What's required to be a leader in business? That's a great question. And I would say there are a lot of myths around leadership and it's sometimes a set of traits like charisma, for example, or intelligence, or you have to be white and tall and things like that, like inborn traits. I, I don't subscribe to that. Then there are people who say it's a set of skills that you would learn a certain way of walking or talking or a way of walking down the factory floor to instill that kind of credibility and trust, something that you have to learn. For example, you have to learn to listen. You have to learn to speak powerfully. You mentioned speaking, reading, writing, and listening. So those are the four things. But I would actually say that ultimately what I've found is that leadership is a set of conversations. That if there are certain conversations and they have to be conversations of value, when you master those conversations, you will be a powerful leader. I'm not saying that's the truth, but I think it makes leadership much more accessible. It makes it something that you and I can do if we have ears or if we have a mouth. We can actually be a leader. I've seen this in India. I've seen it all over the world. I had the privilege to work with leaders all around the world, from Nobel laureates to CEOs to CXOs, but also to people in Haiti who had basically just a shirt and nothing else. They could still be a leader by virtue of being able to speak and listen in a powerful way. Now that opens, they opens up a whole other question of what kind of conversations and how do you do that? But again, that's then the, the deeper question. So let's strip away a couple ideas that many business managers still hold, which is that you need to spontaneously come up with these great conversations and that people can have these conversations without preparation. It's true that happens, but really preparation is a key. In fact, in your book, you mention a very important quote by Bill Walsh, the former head coach of the 49ers football team. He said, the most important tool for getting things done is the drill. For example, we work drills to teach running backs about pass protection against blitz running linebackers. You have to identify the six different situations that can occur. Then you have to allocate time to work those six situations and also the 20 techniques that you want your running backs to be able to apply during game time. It seems like business managers today don't make the time or they get distracted around what it takes to do that kind of thinking and preparation. What is it that makes people choose? Because I think it is a choice. What is it that makes people choose to have that and not just do the watch, do and repeat like I did type of leadership that takes place mostly today? That's a great question. I would agree with you that it has a lot to do with regular practice or I call it ritual. I gave a TED talk all about this, just about what are the kinds of rituals from which a great life is built. I've had the privilege of writing eight 
books and some of them award-winning books. And people ask me, how do you do that? You have a full career, you're a professor, you're a consultant, you're a family man, etc. How do you find time to write all these books? I say it's basically beginning every day with the top priority action and doing that as a ritual. So it's almost automated. I, I don't come to my desk in the morning and say, do I really want to write? Do I feel like writing? Yeah, but I have all these other circumstances in the way and I don't have time and whatever. I just write because I said so. So I think that perhaps the most important ingredient is to honor your word and to basically say, okay, I'm going to make a commitment. For example, you know, I'm going to run a marathon in sub three hours or whatever it is. I want to become CEO. I want to develop a new product, whatever the commitment is, then to cut that down into daily steps and rituals and actually live every single day as a stepping stone towards that accomplishment. I think that's from which history is made. Any great accomplishment has could be cut down into tiny little actions that in and of themselves might look meaningless, but in the totality of doing it every single day, you can accomplish amazing things. You could take sending a man to the moon, or you could take saving a life in a hospital in intensive care. And that has all been proven that it's all about checklists, whether the doctors wash their hands. This is like a tiny ritual, washing the hands before you touch the patient, but it's correlated with saving 99% of the patients. And the same with the moon landing. It's a set of almost infinite actions that together add up to a major account. So it seems that when people understand this, they can have integrity with themselves as well as bring credibility with their teams and be effective as a leader, regardless of their title, if they could make and keep commitments. Can you talk about a company that you work with or students who came through one of your courses and understood, gained this knowledge and applied it and started to produce more, more dramatic results in the way that he or she interacted with the rest of his or her, her colleagues. Yeah, absolutely. There was one student at Columbia, actually, who took the leadership course. All the students had to come up with and deliver a, a catalytic project. So it was like a 100-day catalytic project that was designed to jumpstart the future that they ultimately wanted. They, they had a five-year vision where they wanted to be within five years. Then they had to jumpstart that vision in a microcosm in a kind of a laboratory of action during the semester. This guy came up with an airline. So he actually created a kind of Uber for the air. I'm not sure he would describe it this way, but it's called Paramount Business Jets, a luxury airline that you could book online. And he called me 10 years later and said, Thomas, maybe you don't remember, but I was in your class. I had this project and now this company, Paramount Business Jets, is in Inc.'s list of 500 fastest growing companies in the world. It's amazing because that came out of just a conversation. It was just me asking some questions, them doing something during that semester, and things change. Things happen out of that. You mentioned the word integrity. I think that's absolutely key to, I don't define integrity as a moral phenomenon or an ethical phenomenon. I define it simply like a bicycle wheel that's really beautifully and flawlessly designed and execute it so that it works. I would assert that if you lead a life that has that kind of integrity where you're honoring your word, which you either keep your word or if you cannot keep your word, you let people know that are affected. So you can even say no to people, but that has integrity because you're not saying something that you're not doing. When you have that type of integrity, your performance will be correlated to that. You will accomplish things that you can simply not accomplish when you don't have integrity. That really seems apparent, especially in today's environment of business people in the news, political leaders in the news, 
not doing what they say they're going to do, or not even being explicit with what they want to accomplish. Now, mm -hmm. you created a model called the Global Leadership Pyramid, and it consists of five levels, starting with awareness, then relationships going from the bottom up. Awareness, relationships, vision, strategy, and action. I completely understood how awareness was first, and I completely understood how action was the pinnacle where everything took place. On, but what, what was very surprising to me was that relationships were second in the order before vision. Tell me why that is important in the structure of this pyramid. You, you definitely ask great questions. I've been asked that also before. The foundation or the base is really self-awareness. As General Pershing said in the First World War, no man is fit to command another who is not fit to command himself. So in other words, if you don't check yourself, if you don't check your own assumptions, if you don't have the integrity at the bottom of the pyramid, you cannot build very high. That's why it's a pyramid. Now, to answer your question, the, the relationship level, in my view, is also a basic, a basic building block of the pyramid before you even talk about what future, because you have to build trust. I would say that trust is probably the, the paramount distinction that's missing today or, or that, that is essential today. If I'm selling a product, people have to trust it. If I do internet, anything on the internet, Google has to be trusted. Facebook wants to launch metaverse now. If people don't trust Facebook, they're not going to use it. Politicians want to be voted on. You're not going to get a vote unless you're trusted. People don't get married unless they trust each other. So it's all over the place. In my view, you need to build that kind of trust and those shared interests and shared values. Then you can go back to those people and say, what kind of future do we want to create together? So I guess the answer to your question is vision is not something I do alone. If vision came before the relationship, you could basically do it alone. The Daimler Chrysler boss, Jürgen Schwemm said, I don't care what people think. I, I just have this vision for Mercedes Benz and I don't really care about Chrysler. I will just impose my vision on the company. But in my view today, you can't do that anymore. So you have to co-create the vision in a way that people buy in and that they align on it and they commit to it. And for that, you need to have built trust. I, I love that order. The sequencing is really important and also building trust and repairing relationships where trust may be lacking. I, I like thinking of the emotional bank account where you have either a surplus of trust with individuals or groups, or you have a deficit. And as you build those relationships and seek their end, you're adding to that emotional bank account and getting people ready to trust and follow you because you're listening to them. And that made an awful lot of sense to me. And I think it's very counterintuitive today where many leaders believe that they've got to come up with this vision and then share it or impose it upon their team or their vision um, or their business. Uh, Here again, I think it comes back to having better conversations, being able to ask better questions, listen to the answers, and then synthesize them into a vision. Are there examples where you've seen that happen effectively through your coaching or through people following the model and assistance that's provided? Yeah. Yes, I have. But I, I, I was just touched by what you said. There's some things I want to draw out from what you just said. You, you mentioned the word listening, which I think is so important. And leaders are so often seen as speaking because we see them in the media. So they're giving press conferences or they're issuing a communique. When I think of leaders, I think of Winston Churchill, who obviously was an amazing orator or like Martin Luther King. But the, the listening part, what Martin Luther King did in terms of listening to people and listening for greatness of the people around 
around him, listening while he gave his I Have a Dream speech to listen to the crowd of 200,000 people that was assembled at the Washington Monument and actually dancing with that listening as he was speaking his I Have a Dream. If, if people get a chance to watch that speech, they can watch it on YouTube. There's a moment where he literally discovers that there are all these people with their dreams and their concerns and their fears and their hopes. He starts actually what I call listening to the listening, to say not what he had prepared, not what he had in mind. He had a kind of a stump speech that he used every Sunday in church. It was not a new thing in that sense. But in that moment, he started to dance with the listening and said the words that the people needed to hear rather than what he had to say. In that moment, I think he made history. And that I have a dream is a transcendent speech. It's an example, but it came out of listening, in my view. It came out of the other thing which you mentioned as well, which is asking questions. So many people don't do that. They give answers. They say, my product is amazing. You should follow me because X, Y, Z. They give explanations and answers and a really great question, not just a yes or no question, but like an open-ended question. What would it take to deliver X, Y, Z? Or what do you believe in? What's, where do you want to be in five years? Those kinds of questions that are open-ended have people show up with greatness around you instead of just being your tools of your strategy. I love your response. Thomas, I would add one other thing to that. That is when you ask the open-ended question that you don't already think the answer. Exactly. I couldn't say it any better. To give you one example, I was working with, with a very large aerospace company and it's not Boeing. Okay. So people can probably figure out which one it is. And I was asking them this question, what is it that has you produced the same results over and over again? They were building satellites for the European Space Agency. Instead of taking five years to build a satellite, it took them 10 years. So they went 100% over time and 100% over budget. So it's not a very good place to be in. I asked them, what is it? What's the background that keeps you generating those same subpar outcomes? It took us several days to figure that out, but we, we figured out kind of the, I call it the bottle. No matter what content you put into the bottle, whether it's sand, whether it's water, whether it's oil, it will always have the shape of the bottle. So what, what is the bottle itself for this company? We figured out that the bottle or the background conversation was our best days are behind us. Now, imagine going to work every day, thinking that things used to be really great around here, but not anymore. And, and I don't think a five-year future makes any difference because it's the same as it ever was. And we're going to change the CEO. We're going to train people. We're going to make all kinds of change management, but it's not going to really make a difference because our best days are behind us. We don't have a prayer basically. And it's going to be harder and harder to squeeze out results. So once we had that, we could basically put that aside and say, do we want the future to be given by this bottle? Or is there maybe another future that is not given by this conversation? That's a conversation that you can have, which hopefully will create a vision. That's a dramatically different perspective to take because when you have a different shape bottle, it creates the the circumstances or the environment in which visions can take place and shape the work, the activities, the goals, the objectives that take place within that environment, within that container. Exactly. Or to say the other way, the inverse statement is if you don't do that, then all of your actions, all of what you can think is possible, all of your behaviors, and therefore all of your results will reflect the bottle that you had inherited, right? So you basically have no chance. That's basically what I think is that, you know, Peter Dropka said it this way, culture eats strategy for breakfast. 
breakfast every day. I think that's what he had in mind, that the culture, the invisible conversations that are running in the background, it's not what the CEO says in public. It's not what people say in the meetings. It's what they think that they don't say, or maybe what they say to each other at the water cooler or at the coffee machine, or it's what they think late at night when they're lying in bed and, and thinking, what's my life about? What, what am I doing here? The culture is really the bottle that we're talking about. And what is exactly. explicit and implicit within what is allowed, encouraged, reinforced, and rewarded within a business is really what gives shape to that bottle. Unlike a glass Coke bottle, which is always going to have that same shape, culture has more malleability to it. If you explicitly look to design that and take steps to take out the kinks, if, if you find yes, yourself exactly. with something too restrictive. Exactly. It's all conversation, right? So if I believe that an organization or a company is ultimately a network of conversations, but it's not fiat, any company in Novartis is not its desks. It's not the buildings. It's not even only the people. It's basically the conversation that exists that's called Novartis or the conversation that exists that is called Facebook. That's a network network of conversations. For example, if my daughter comes to work and watches me work, right? Take any small child. If you have children, if your child comes to work and watches you work, what is he or she going to say that, that daddy does every day? She probably will say he's talking or he's listening. Or he's on the phone. He's typing something, which is a conversation. He's reading something, which is a conversation. So ultimately what we do is nothing other than being paid for having conversation. If you can see it that way, then I think you could change culture because otherwise culture is something very mysterious. It's like, how, how do I change that? Yeah. That's very, it's very hard to change. But if I can look at it as a set of conversations that has all the votes in a way, then I could start saying, okay, is that the conversation we want to have? Or is there a new conversation that we could design? That's true. No matter what your title is within the organization, isn't that right? You can have that conversation That's and have that influence to shape the bottle, to shape the culture, regardless of your title. That's exactly right. Again, I, I said that earlier, right? It's even people who have only a shirt. And I met some guy who he was in a leadership workshop with me in Porto Prince in and, and he said he raised his hand and I, I called on him and he said, you see this shirt here? I was fighting with my sister this morning whether I was allowed to put on the only shirt that the family has. This mm -hmm. is the Sunday shirt. I said, I'm going to a leadership workshop. I need to put on this shirt. He learned that as a human being, regardless of how much money you have, regardless of your title, regardless of your, regardless of your authority, you have the power to create a conversation and to listen and speak in a certain way. Now that takes practice, which brings us back to the, to your earlier point about the practices, rituals, everyday action. So important. And we're going to bypass the lightning round questions, which we normally have, because this is just part one of another conversation, which we're going to have. And right now, I just want to thank you so much for joining me on my quest for the best. And to summarize a few of the key points where you mentioned how Gandhi was influential to you growing up and reminding us that in order to have integrity, in order to tell others to do something, it's important that we also can abide by that standard and that commitment to make sure that we understand that major life events like what happened in 9-11 can really be transformative and to allow ourselves to be transformed to see what is actually of essence in our lives in order to think about what is this the state of the company and to allow people to 
Think what are the conversations we're having and the shape of the bottle we're creating through our everyday interactions, whether we're all together in an office or that we're working remotely. The conversations are still what makes the culture effective and what allows us to have leadership taking place. So Thomas Weifel, author of Leadership in 100 Days, I want to thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best. Thank you so much. Can I add one thing? Please. Or are we... I just wanted to remind people that the power of conversations, you know, to basically watch maybe over over the next few days or over the next few weeks, this is a mini assignment to watch what comes out of your mouth and what do other people say. I'll give you an example. If my wife gets up this morning and says, I must go to work, that immediately creates a reality, right? So basically the, the Hebrew word for word is davar, which means also a thing. So the, the Hebrew word for word and for thing is the same word. So basically, you know, what we say becomes reality. And I just want to ask people to be alert and to be conscious. What do you generate as conversations and what do you hear other people generate and to see how you're creating a reality? My wife creates a rea reality called I'm the prisoner of my boss. I must go to work. I'm a victim. So with just a few words, you're creating a whole world. Hopefully when you become aware, that already will be a lot of change that you can make simply by how you change your conversation. Thomas, to find out more about what's going on in your world, where can we look online? Ah, uh, I would say that thomaszweipel.com, and that's hard to say, so I'm going to spell it. We're going to link gonna, to it in the show notes. We're going to link to it in the show notes so that people are, who are listening to us can go there and find out what's going on at thomaswipel.com. We're also going to link to um, your social media, as well as places to buy your book, Leadership in 100 Days. So once again, Thomas Weifel, author of Leadership in 100 Days, as well as other books that I recommend people pick up and learn from. I want to thank you once again for joining me on my quest for the best. Bill, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. Hi, this is Bill, and I hope you've enjoyed this podcast interview on my quest for the best. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite app, so you never miss an episode full of stories, tips, and insights for the ambitious small business leader. Now I have a quick request for you. Please go to Apple Podcasts and iTunes and give us a rating and review. My team and I really appreciate the feedback and we read every comment to find out what you enjoy and what you want as we develop new content, course materials, and a few surprises that we have in store for you. When you rate and review my quest for the best, you help other small business leaders find us, subscribe to the podcast, and join the community. You can get the Insider's e-newsletter for small business leaders by going to myquestforthebest.com. We have chosen a challenging path to make a living and make a difference in the world, and I believe it's important to share top-notch resources with each other, which is why you'll find new episodes from top thought leaders and small business experts on My Quest for the Best each week. Thanks for listening and being part of the community. See you on the next episode.